Hi, welcome back to the Cloisterbell podcast. Um, this is your co-host Rob, a lifelong fan of Doctor Who, Peter, and many other things. And as we all know, uh, a fan is the sum of his memories. This fan, even more so, it's Liam. <laughs> oh, that's a hi, fantastic Liam. introduction. Uh, hi, Rob. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not bad. How about you? Great, thanks. Yeah. Just been catching up on the five doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, which version have you been watching? Have you been doing some um, revision? Yeah, yeah, I've been doing some revision. I thought um, I've I actually watched both because, um, well, because I wanted to really. Mm. How about you? Um, well, I did. I was a bit strapped for time, so I did start with the original version, mm-hmm. and. I don't know. I'm I'm used to the special edition now, so I was nitpicking all these little differences that I'm not used to, and I, and I thought I'll just put the special edition on. Mm-hmm. So, so no, I did that. Yeah, no, because I'm of both versions. I'm more familiar with because I remember you had because um, I had the original on VHS, mm-hmm. um, and then when the special edition came out, it was it was a box set which came with the King's Demons. And, That's right, and, and and a book for limited edition postcards, uh, and then because of that, uh, it was a bit daft. I decided to get rid of my copy of the original version of the Five Doctors, so I just oh. had the special edition. I know it was silly, um, so I wasn't able to see the the original transmitted version until it was finally released on DVD in oh, I don't know when it was two thousand nine or something. Yeah, well, I've actually got a list of the, all the different releases here. I made note of. Um, you're right, there was the VHS and Betamax release in 85. Right. Then there was the the UK edition released on VHS in 1990. Mm-hmm. The US had a Laserdisc release in 94. Laserdisc, and, wow. And then the special edition VHS was 95. The special edition DVD which was the debut for the whole range of DVDs, wasn't it? That was 99. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then, you're right, we had the the special edition, or sorry, the anniversary edition DVD was 2008. Oh, right, 2008, right, okay. Yeah. Which was good to have um, the TV version finally released. Yeah, because it, it had been a long, long time. And I think at that point, it was I was really excited to finally be able to, to watch it again. Yeah, and it was good just having a bit more shelf continuity, because the Five Doctors was like the odd one out on the shelf, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a bit funny also how things come around, because I remember I because I also had that on DVD, and if I remember rightly, the the the, um, the DVD menus was of the TARDIS console room. Yeah, and they've it's slightly different, but they've, it's kind of come full circle a bit because that's what they're doing with the Blu-ray releases. Ah, right, okay. And all the DVD menus that came after that were all just that initial sequence, weren't they? Before before the TARDIS doors opens. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. But the cover art kind of matches like other BBC DVDs, doesn't it? Am I right? 
you know you get all these um all the original releases of like black adder and things like that they were all kind of on a silver backed um sleeve um cover rather yeah yeah that's right so it used the uh the the cover image was of what they used on the special edition of the VHS but the rest of it with the the silver um and the way that the rest of it was formatted yeah it blended in with the rest of the DVD the BBC DVD releases so yeah Blackadder Monty Python and everything else that was out yeah and obviously it only contained the special edition not the broadcast edition mm-hmm. and i like what they wrote on the back of the box it says not intended as a replacement for the original edition of the story this is an alternative version which uses state of the art tech to embellish and enlarge one of the greatest Doctor Who adventures ever. If only George Lucas had used that statement, he would have saved himself a lot of grief, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, I think I think he would have. And this DVD came out the same year as The Phantom Menace. Oh yeah, I forgot. Yes, 1999. I remember going to the cinema to see The Phantom Menace. I remember the excitement. I mean, that was a thing because I wasn't a massive Star Wars fan. No. Uh, but even I was massively excited because I remember a few years prior the original trilogy had been released at the cinema. And I remember so I remember going to the cinema um, to watch the very first one, A New Hope, and I found it really boring. Oh, really? Yeah, I just didn't enjoy it. I've changed my mind now, obviously, because I can watch it, and I, I, I do think it's a very well-made, enjoyable movie. But at the time, as a, as a, uh, for some reason, I just found it a bit tedious. Um but a few years later, when it came to The Phantom Menace, I remember, I think like everyone was just tremendously excited by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time I liked it. I, d- I, d- I don't think The Phantom Menace deserves a lot of the vitriol that's aimed at it. No, no, definitely not. Uh, I can see why j- people would regard Jar Jar Binks as being a bit irritating. But um, of that new, of that prequel trilogy, I actually think Attack of, um, Attack of the Clones is the, uh, is the weakest. Definitely, it's the least memorable to me, mm. and it's not one I go back to rewatch quite often. No, um, those nineteen ninety seven special editions of Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, they still feel quite new to me. I, I look at them and think, oh, that's that piece of dialogue's new, or that 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 seems new. Uh, but there must be a lot of people that have been brought up on those those versions, so it's hard to know the difference. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've still got my old VHSs from um, before they were remastered. So, are they of the, the the original cinematic releases then? Yes, and they've been re-released um, since on DVD as a limited edition, but not um, totally remastered um, to the extent that you'd like. Mm, right, Obviously, okay. I, I think we've talked about this in a previous podcast mm-hmm. at some point, but um, I think it was going to be quite costly to remaster them fully because of the state they were in yeah i remember yeah, i dispute that i mean yes it would it would be quite costly but i think um because funny enough i've just been re uh, i've just recently been re-watching the um the godfather movies which okay. i would which i absolutely love and i think they're fantastic especially parts one and two and there's a there's a special feature where they're talking about um the legacy of the Godfather and the importance and so on, and then they talk about the, how they remastered them, uh-huh. and they had they had the original negatives and 
Fulham footage held at, I think it was Paramount, but the quality was appalling. It was really, really bad. And they show you a clip and it's, oh, it's just awful looking. And what they did was they then put, um, they then put a business proposal to remaster them, which was approved. Um, and hence, you know, they were remastered and we've got them looking, but looking how they were when they were originally shown at the cinema. Mm. And that's the Godfather movies, which are absolutely fantastic and phenomenal. But let's face it, I think I think there's much more money in Star Wars than there is in the Godfather movies. Yeah, totally. So they, and like you said, they just need to be restored to the condition they were. They don't need to look brand new. Yeah, I mean, because regardless of whether you're a fan of Star Wars, and I think I'm probably repeating myself from when we discussed it uh, previously, but whether you're a fan of them, they are in terms of cinema, historically very, very important. Mm. Um, they had a massive impact. So I think it's, if, if you're really into into movies and, and the importance of things like this, you want to be able to enjoy what original cinema goers went to see and just, um, just preserve that history. Yeah. Look at the Dalek movies, for example. They were remastered for Blu-ray. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. That did, they did quite a job. I think there's probably a um, a feature on one of the Blu-rays all about that. Um, but surely that didn't cost much. No, no, I wouldn't have thought so. So, have you got any news this week? Uh, yeah, just a couple of things. There's uh, this story's been doing the rounds on a few places. There's a family-run museum dedicated to Doctor Who, which is in uh, Allendale, Northumberland, and. They've been forced to close because a newly installed Dalek display does not comply with planning regulations. So it's just one of those uh, things you sort of like, oh, okay. And it's just a small little run science fiction museum, a lot of it focused on Doctor Who. But because they've got um, a replica Dalek prop, which actually looks impressive, I'll, I'll, put, the photo, uh, I'll put the photo on our Instagram feed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can't fit in the house. So what they what they did was they, they've... they've got a, just a normal garden shed and then put the Dalek in that. But apparently the shed doesn't doesn't comply with council regulations, so as a result they've had to close. Oh, it's a shame. Yeah. Um, so, there's, so there's that, which is rather unfortunate. And then yeah. um, it's just been announced uh, that the next series of Doctor Who has started filming. Yeah, I noticed a tweet from uh, BBC America, which I retweeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think judging for, it's just one photo of, of the regulars, but by looking at it, I don't think it's in Cardiff. No. No. Um, so the, I think, judging, judging by the weather at the moment. No, no, exactly, yeah, and the fact they're all wearing shorts and everything. <laughs> so I think they're filming abroad somewhere. And finally, the um, Doctor Who Scratchman uh, book has just been published. Finally, yeah. written by Tom Baker. Uh, Tom Baker appeared on BBC Radio 2's Graham Norton show, being interviewed about that. It's still available on iPlayer if anyone's interested. If you go onto the BBC website and search for the Graham Norton show, this is the one that w- was broadcast on Saturday the 26th of January. I don't know how long it'll be available. I think you'll have a, a little while to catch up on it for those that have missed it. But if you skip to 1 hour 35 minutes and 50 seconds... Um, that's the start of the Tom Baker interview. Oh, and I noticed also on Twitter today, um, um, Forbidden Planet um, has got a signing with Tom Baker today, um, which obviously will be over now, but I did mm-hmm. retweet that. You can check that out. 
Oh, that uh, yeah, that would have been nice. I take it that was the one in London. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, so we'll obviously you'll give that a read, and we'll have a talk about it soon. Yes, there's a uh, there's a six minute uh, clip on YouTube which has been uploaded where uh, Tom Baker reads an excerpt, um, following an interview about it, and it's 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 really really fun to watch because he he's clearly relishing, um. And just enjoying what he's read. Shall we have a listen to a little clip from that? Uh, yes. Oh! Oh, no. No. Hello. I've just been reading this book. I'm all of a doodah here. This is the most terrifying book I've ever read, yes. That I've ever written. You'll like it. Here it goes. Just a bit, mind you. You can't stand a long excerpt. Book one. The long night, the beginning of fear. The time Lord was late, that's me. He was in trouble, and he'd been summoned to the convocation of oblivion to account for his actions. His august peers had gathered in a tall tower in a tall city to hear one of his tall stories. <laughs> I like that bit. One of my stories it was. He's going to say he saved the universe again, huffed one to another running a finger round his stiff collar. It's still where we left it, isn't it? His friend sneered. His friend had been a junior archivist for 3,000 years, I know. And in his experience, the universe continued much as it always had done. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, that's fantastic. He's got such a distinctive voice and you just you love listening to him. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to that. So mm. that the audio, I'm going to get that from Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be available from other outlets too and the audio is 8 hours 40 minutes long which in comparison to a lot of other audio books it's quite short mm-hmm. I mean he's he's co-written the book with uh, James uh, Goss who I think what, if I'm right in saying was responsible for uh, Scream of the Schalke alright he'd also tweeted today encouraging everyone to go out and buy a copy um, so it could meet the um, the Sunday Times bestseller. Ah, right. I subscri- so that, that would have been judged on today's sales, I'm guessing. Right. Well, um, I read the Times. In fact, I subscribe to them. So I'll keep an eye out on that and, and see if it see if it does indeed make the list. Yeah. And I was also in Sainsbury's today looking for it. I thought, I'll go and buy a copy. Mm-hmm. And just, it's just not on sale. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Damn them. <laughs> Well, I, I have bought the book and it got delivered, and in fact, I'm holding it right now. And it do, it does look really rather good. I love the cover. I do think it'll be quite, quite creepy. I mean, I think the whole idea isn't Scratchman supposed to be the devil? Yes, yeah, it's a, essentially, yeah. So it should be quite good. I'm looking forward to that. And as Rob said before, we uh, we will be reviewing it in a future podcast. And so, Scratchman isn't the only fourth doctor. Um, story we've got coming out we've also got the comic strip adaptions from big finish all right okay that sounds fun and one of them which i remember quite well is iron legion i've got all the republished comics that have came out in the past 10 years or so and the audio will cover iron legion and doctor who and the star beast should we listen to a trailer for that Uh, yes please that'd be good Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, the comic strip adaptations, volume one. Good evening. 
The news at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, the 20th of February, 1980. Ah! I'm a monster. I'm a monster. Fudge! You're a wazzock. That's what you are. Nearly scared us to death. <laughs> M1000CM900LXX1X. That's a... 1979. Date of manufacture, 1979. That's now! Oh, gods, how I love war. Let my Iron Legion march forever, for only through destruction am I alive. Without it, I am a dead sea. Hyperspace jump completed. Planet Sol 3 in sight. That is where the radiation trail leads. It is, sir. Then pinpoint the target. At once. I have conquered this town, the place they call Stockbridge. That's the last of the neck bolts, so all it needs is one good twist and a... <laughs> tug. Run, Shah, run! Fudge! <laughs> I think he's crying. Don't get too close, he might have space mage. He was bleeding, remember? Why are they keeping us standing around? What do they want with us, Viv? I don't know, Doc. Funny that. Still, look on the bright side. They've not shot us. Surrender or I'll be annihilated. I surrender. I repeat that. Goodness, is that a chieftain? I am the only chieftain here. I meant the tank. Pretty Polly. Watch out, Mr. Morris. Oh, Hey, Doc, they're using backed guns on us. Hola. Big finish. I said, hola. We love stories. Look, whoever you are, the least you could do for a fellow whose space-time ship you shanghaied is hola, back. Oh, that's fantastic, though. Um, was that Beep the Meep? I don't know. I'm sure I heard that. I, I hope so, because uh, when I was a kid, I used to buy a lot of Doctor Who, uh, second-hand Doctor Who magazines. So these were Doctor Who magazines from the 70s and the 80s and so on. And there was a lot of fourth Doctor comics, and there was this uh, big fluffy creature called Beep the Meep. It was this wonderfully cute-looking creature, but the whole idea was that he was the most uh, dangerous creature in the entire universe and was this bloodthirsty maniac. And I remember really enjoying those comics, and I thought they were tremendously uh, good fun. And then when it was Doctor Who's 35th anniversary, I think uh, Doctor Who magazine did this comic, which was all a bit meta, where the Eighth Doctor and his companion land at BBC Television Centre in 1979. And things have all gone a bit weird. And they they end up encountering Tom Baker playing the Fourth Doctor. And he defeats Beep the Meep, who's the main villain in that comic. It's a bit barking mad, but it was really good fun. So the audio adaptations are out in March. Right, okay. So, another bit of news. Uh, David Tennant's starting his own podcast. Oh, damn, a bloody rival. Yeah, I read <laughs> about that. Um, and apparently, I think his first guest is going to be Jodie Whittaker. That's a bit annoying. I wanted her to be our first guest. I know. Well, she can still be our first guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't had any yet. Yeah, but um, I found about that. And that should be good fun. I, um, I followed his Twitter feed for that. and um, So, I'll be listening out for that. I think that'd be good. In fact, because uh, he's actually got an imp- impressive list because it isn't just actors. I think um, I think he also mentioned that he's going to be interviewing Gordon Brown as well. Yeah, I read that, and at first I was thinking the actor Gordon Brown. Who's he? <laughs> I kind of thought, oh, it probably is him. <laughs> yeah, we should apply for some guests. Yeah, didn't, you know, years ago, didn't you? Um, 
reach out to um, Peter Capaldi <laughs> for an interview. <laughs> yes, I did, yeah. I mean, I knew it was a long shot. Uh, this was before um, his series had started, I think. Oh, I can't it was just, just after the announcement. Possibly. I might be wrong. Possibly. No, I think we'd... I can't remember. It was such a long time ago. It was either... Yeah, it was either just before his first episode of Doctor Who, Deep Breath, was broadcast, or just after. I can't remember. I mean, I knew it was a long shot, and it was very <laughs> unlikely for, for him to respond, and uh, and I was right. I think if there was a way of contacting Peter Capaldi directly, I think... I think as... Um, from what I understand from, from fans who have... Other fans who have contacted him directly, he's always responded in some form. But I did the thing of contacting his agent, and his agent obviously is tre- is uh, is tremendously busy, busy and isn't going to give me, me sort of uh, the time of day. It's just like, oh, this is true. what? No. Go ahead. He's he's probably got a new agent by now. Should try again. Yeah, well, I'll try again. <laughs> try again. <laughs> Get on it. <laughs> so should we move on to the five doctors? Uh, yes. So this will be the third multi doctor story that we've explored. In the past few weeks. Yes, yeah, yeah. So this was the very first Doctor Who adventure which was broadcast outside the UK first. Um, I think the Americans have uh, seen it first because this is the Five Doctors, the 20th anniversary special. And it was shown in America on the 23rd of November 1983. Uh, whereas in the UK it was broadcast a few days later on the 25th of November as part of uh, the Children's Need BBC Telethon charity. And am I right in thinking the Target novelisation came out on the 24th? I think so. I can't quite remember, but it was certainly before before, before the episode was broadcast, yeah. Mm. And that wasn't planned. That was that was a, um, a mistake in the scheduling. Um, so it kicks off with a pre-title scene with Hartnell from the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, which is cool, including it. Um, but it puts a slightly different emphasis on it. The fact that he's coming back, just in general. Um, but it it was a great scene with him and Susan in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Five Doctors, he is reunited with Susan. Um, but it's not. It doesn't pay off the way you'd want it to, does it? No, I suppose not. And I su- it's it's even a bit more peculiar given that there are brief moments when Susan's with the other doctors and mm. from their point of view it's their granddaughter whom they haven't seen in a while yeah um and i think it's one of those things that if that were done now they would they would make a big deal of that and there'll be some sort of emotional payoff i mean apparently peter davison was very much aware of this and well indeed uh, was caroline ford who plays susan to the point where even though it wasn't written in the written in the script in terms of their performance what they wanted to do was give some sort of indication that for, certainly from the fifth doctor's point of view that this is my granddaughter i'm so pleased to see her i haven't seen her in a while but um according to caroline ford that was deliberately quashed because they actually thought that it came across as if they were flirting rather than they actually missed oh, each come other. on <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? But I, I call it Caroline for that's what happened. It just makes um, the fifth Doctor seem really careless. It comes across like that with other companions, like when he shakes hand with Sarah Jane at the end. But we'll get to that at the end. Mm-hmm. But yes, um, I think 
I think actually beginning the adventure with that that clip from William Hartnell was actually really rather nice because unfortunately uh, William Hartnell had passed away in 1975. This was a television adventure that was being shown in the early 80s, so he had long since passed away. So they had to recast the first Doctor. But to have William Hartnell in in that way, one, I think it was a perfect... um, it was a perfect clip to choose that, that, that the farewell speech that he gives to Susan and because it works out of context the whole thing about you know one day he will come back and it just it's wonderfully touching and I th- and just a really brilliant choice to kickstart the entire adventure off I think it works very well yeah really good I think we all know that speech off by heart yeah I don't find well I could I think I'll probably be able to quote it uh, perfectly yeah so this is probably exclusive to the special edition, but there's some great um, exterior shots of the Dark Tower after the opening tiles. Yes, that's just the special edition. Yeah. Um, and then we get the new TARDIS interior, is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Which is pretty cool. Um, I like how clean it looks, mm-hmm. but personally it, it, it's slightly yet radically different to the original, isn't it? There's a lot more broader highlights on it. I don't know, um, but I do. I, it probably is one of my favourite consoles. Yeah, I think. Uh, but I th- in in relation to the first one, which was really dated, it's it's subtly but quite in a big way different. Yeah, so they got the the same the same shape and size of it, but they have made it look a lot more technologically advanced as yeah. would have been the case from from the early 1980s and for that time in the show it does look you know it it does look impressive if you consider what the TARDIS console was like towards the end of Tom Baker's time as the doctor in the first two seasons of uh, Peter Davison mm. it is pretty much this you know I, th- I think it did need updating because i think there there are certain there are certain stories where it does it does look like the whole thing's falling apart a bit and is a bit rough around the edges. So I think it was a much-needed uh, revamp. And then we've got the time scoop models. What did you think of those? I thought they, I thought they looked quite good. Um, yeah. But it's funny because, uh, again, this will be something that I'll post up on Instagram. I ended up coming across a, um, uh, a photo of them. I think uh, I think a collector somewhere has, has got them and has posted the... has, has posted a photograph online and they look a bit funny but in terms of the actual in terms of how they look in the show and with the lighting and everything like that i think um i think it works quite well so then um the first doctor is time scooped now which visual effect do you prefer i've got to admit i do prefer the original really Uh, yeah it's um i remember at the time when when the special edition first came out in 1995, it looked incredibly impressive. I think at the yeah. time. I think it's it's funny. It's now I think it's actually dated. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look awful. I'm not saying that, but in terms of a comparison, I actually think that the original television effect, which is a lot simpler, which is basically it's a sort of black triangle that flickers across the screen but i think that i think that version works a lot better isn't it? and is a, a bit more ominous yeah yeah which which one do you prefer mm, 
I'm a lot more used to the special edition because I watched that a lot on DVD when I first got it. Right. Um. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that one. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um. It's the same kind of effect you get from Star Wars. It's like they got these movies from the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties, and then they slapped some nineteen nineties effects on them, which mm-hmm. are there for good. And yeah. then eventually it just looks dated. Mm-hmm. Just looks out of place. So, the second Doctor arrives at um, at Unit, and we finally see the brig. Yep. Um. And he read about it all in Tomorrow's Times. <laughs> yeah. And that's always bugged me because why would it be in the Times? It shouldn't it be all top secret. I I know that it's, I know exactly I know where you're coming from, but I actually think it's believable, especially because. If, for example, MI6 is a top secret uh, is a top secret organization, mm-hmm. but whenever the controller of MI6 has resigned, it has actually appeared in the newspapers. Okay, and I know that was yeah. I think I'll, t- I'll give them that. Yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. I think funny enough, I think that's something that that's the case more in recent times. I think. Funny enough, when this show was originally broadcast in 1983, I'm not sure that would have been the case. In this story, the Briggs more accepting of the absurd, isn't he? In comparison to the third Doctors that we were just watching last week. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I think at this point, because he's he's retiring from Unit, he's gone mm-hmm. through a lot more... You know, he, he's gone through a lot more, so he's got all that experience. And he's gone through the experiences of the three doctors and he's seen regeneration firsthand. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the, the go outside and the reminisce, but that doesn't last long, does it? Cause the doctor's like, well, I must be off. He's only just got there. <laughs> yeah. And so I love the scene with the third doctor driving along with the music. Yeah. Funny enough. I think of, of all the introductions to all the doctors, that, that yeah, I mean, one I absolutely love John Pertwee's Doctor, and he was the first Doctor I ever encountered, and I, th- I, I th- I'll always have that connection because he was my first Doctor and was my favourite for a long, long time. Um, so to see him suddenly you know appear in this big, massive anniversary story, it's like yes, he's there, and introduced yeah. in the way he is, where he's he's driving Bessie, and so he, this is the action Doctor. You know, yeah. the whole thing of great balls of fire. And then, you know, trying to... But a car chase. Yeah, so you, you get this mini car chase and it, it, it's, it's handled really well. <laughs> and that's the, and you mentioned the, the music uh, earlier and, and just in this scene here. And Peter Howell does do a fantastic uh, job with the music. I do love the incidental music in her story. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. So that even the use of uh, a metronome with all the clicking and the sense of time. And mm-hmm. he uses the bass note of the original version of the Doctor Who theme. It's yeah, this 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 beat that kind of trails along. Yeah, yeah. But it's this kind of it's just a kind of a mono beat, isn't it? It's all mm-hmm. the same tone. Yeah, but he's even he's even he's even used that in, in, in um, used that in the score, which I think's uh, quite inspired and works very well. So the next introduction we've got is Sarah Jane and K Nine. Um, and and she's got a really strange coat on. <laughs> yeah. But in comparison to Zoe later on in the bubble wrap, um, we'll let her off. <laughs> um, well, it's great it... to see. It's great to have K Nine included in the in the special. Yeah. Do you think he should have been in it more? 
I think it would have been nice, but when you look at, um, if you actually sort of like researched the the story and so on, it was things like this, which it was Terence Dix uh, who was adamant that um, K-9 be included. Uh, I think he had to, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a, a sort of like a massive argument and had to ha- massively put his, his case ahead. But it was Terence Dix who suggested it to John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward going, look, K-9 was a massively popular character for quite some time. You need to have K-9 in it. It is a bit brief. Um, but, you know, at least he is in there. The funny thing is, though, it's uh, Terence Dix really had to convince them to include the Dalek. Well, that's strange. Which is... The other way around, you'd, you'd think, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would think... Uh, you, to include the Daleks in an anniversary uh, story is is bally obvious. Um, so the fact that he was the one who had to convince them mm-hmm. uh, is sort of interesting. And, it, I mean, it's great we've got a Dalek there. And it, but um, I think it's a bit more... I quite like the K9 cameo. It would have been nice to have K9 involved a bit more, but I think it works. The thing that I, strikes me as a bit odd is how brief the Dalek is in. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it's um, it's at a point in the story where we could do with, with the story would function without that scene. It's a shame it didn't have more of a subplot, just like the Cybermen did. Mm-hmm. Later on in the story, even though the Cybermen subplot was a bit pointless um, from on some angles of it, so. Yeah, it's a shame K9 wasn't in it more. And I was just thinking, you know how we kind of give the Sonic a bit of grief lately? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's overused. Um, and that had me thinking, I would much rather have K9 being used constantly than the Sonic. <laughs> I agree with that, actually. Because at least with K9, there's, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a character there. And it, it just makes it a lot more interesting to watch from that point of view. I can understand... K nine in of itself can can maybe make things a bit easy, but if you if you look at the Tom Baker era, uh, there are moments when K 9s imperiled and is um, has been dis- you know effectively been destroyed. The Stones of Blood is a good example of that. So you can actually emphasise the drama because K nine is a companion and there's and there's a character there. You can use that, whereas the Sonic Screwdriver is just. It's just a, a tool which... I think now's a time when it could be quite relevant bringing K9 in. Because, you know, we're used to, like you said, as a character, like this sentient um, robot. And we're in the day and age where we're dealing with um, bordering on AI kind of um, algorithms and stuff. And we've got we've got driverless cars, things like that. Um, voice recognition. It would be good having to see K9 as a character deal have to deal with moral dilemmas in in modern stories. Yeah, that's true as well. He d- K9 in, in that sense has become a lot more relevant. So yeah, it it, it would be really really good if if K9 was was brought back in the series. There's a there's a lot of uh, potential there. Obviously it would it would it would help with the branding of the show. I, there's not many people that are going to mock it if it's done properly. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. You know, it's a bit of an icon of the show. Yeah, yeah. So, straight after this, I think, if I'm right, we'll go straight to the shorter footage. Um, so, for you, is that enough for the show? Well, yeah, it's a bit funny, sort of like the, the directing and the writing suddenly improves for a moment. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, don't, I couldn't resist that. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> yes, I think it is, because 
when I first watched The Five Doctors, one, I didn't know anything about Sharda at that point. Um, to me, I thought this was footage that was exclusively shot for the show. Likewise, at the time of broadcast, I bet all the viewers thought that as well. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, because as I say, so I wasn't aware that there'd been this uh, show which had had been filmed but wasn't been able to complete because of strike action. So there was this unused footage that they then just inserted into the show. I thought it was I thought it was woven in very very well. It aided the drama because there's this sense that the fourth Doctor, the Doctor immediately before Peter Davison's Doctor, is 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 imperiled. They all are. But it aids that sense of um, because he's trapped in the time vortex that the current Doctor could cease to exist altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, which I still think is the case. I still think that's um, that's woven in quite well considering the limitations. I think with hindsight... I mean, t- Tom Baker himself has regretted the decision not to appear in the show. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, John Nathan Turner, I think, got a verbal agreement there was a moment when it looked like Tom Baker was sort of convinced of, yeah, I would like to come back, but in that last minute decided uh, not to. That's um, a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's sort of like one of those things. There are certain <laughs> things like um, Deborah Walt, uh, Deborah Watling, who played Victoria during the Patrick Troughton era. Um, she was originally going to appear in the story and in fact had agreed to appear, but then had to drop out due to a clash with filming the Dave Allen show. All right. But this is annoying. The Dave Allen show wasn't actually made due to strike action. Oh. So after all, I know. So after all, that Deborah Watling could have actually could have actually appeared, and that would have been great to have Victoria back in the show. To what extent do you think um, as a main character in the in the special? Yes, because the original the original idea was to have Susan with the first Doctor. Well, we'll get that. That's fine. Victoria would have been with the second. Yeah. Uh, but for the reasons which I explained, that didn't happen. Joe, played by Katie Manning, was going to be with a third, but because at that point she was living in Australia, um, okay. th- that that just wasn't possible uh, in order to fly here and the scheduling and all the rest of it. And Sarah would have been with the fourth. So when you consider we've got the William Hartnell footage mm-hmm. and the Tom Baker footage, mm-hmm. do you think that um, helps validate the title of the show? Yes, I think so. I mean, to all intents and purposes, even though the first Doctor's recast through the the main the main story with mm. Richard Hurdle playing the first Doctor, we've got a first Doctor, um, so that covers that. The fourth Doctor does appear in it. I mean, I know what you mean. The, the sort of that thing of should it really be called three and a, three and a half Doctors or whatever? <laughs> I mean, keeping in mind because even with the three with the three Doctors, the tenth anniversary special, it was it was John Pertwee and. Patrick Troughton for the most part with mm-hmm. with William Hartnell popping in very very briefly. I mean his I mean I don't know I haven't looked at it but in this in in this regard but he probably appears for all of maybe 3 minutes in the total of the adventure but I would still say that the three doctors is still mm. a valid title because he is there and interacting. He's like Darth Maul. He's an only he's only in like 3 minutes of the Phantom Menace. And that's insane. He's the best character. <laughs> And then they kill him off at the end. Idiocy. Yeah. Imagine if they kept him alive and he would have been this, this, Wait, well, this you, ongoing threat during the entire can I, trilogy. Can I not say anything? Do you know anything about the future of Darth Maul? No. I don't know if I can say anything on this podcast if anyone hasn't seen 
any of the newer movies. So yeah, the time scoop conveniently doesn't pick up Tom Baker, probably. Mm-hmm. And one thing I was unsure about, was it Barusa who brought the Fifth Doctor to the Death Zone in the TARDIS? Or was that the Doctor telepathically controlling the TARDIS? I think what it is, I think it's a I think it's a mixture of the Doctor trying to Find his former selves. Yes, find his former selves and Barusa getting the fifth Doctor, the the then current Doctor involved. Yeah. Okay, that's one thing I was a bit unsure about. Yeah, I think because the fact that the TARDIS lands in the death zone. Mm -hmm. So he would, because of the the force field and everything, the TARDIS would have had to be time scooped there. Yeah. Okay. Is, that's how I look at that. Yeah. And obviously Barusa just wanted to use the Doctor to get through all these, um, the game of Rassilon. Mm-hmm. Just to help him get, uh, obviously, to get the ring of Rassilon at the end. Um, yeah. And Barusa brings in all these kind of distractions for the Doctor. Did he bring in the Cybermen and the Dalek? Yes. Okay. And another thing I was unsure about, did he not want the master to be to be sent in or did he because you know when he's talking um, in an official capacity as the president mm-hmm. um he's kind of saying that he objected to this yeah i'm not sure about that one because i then you could take that at face value but when later on when he's ex- so that may be the case and you think involving the master could potentially ruin his plan or later on when the fifth doctor discovers Bruce has been the person behind that and Bruce is explaining everything and he goes, uh, I give you old enemies to fight. Mm-hmm. He, he's demonstrating that point by holding the, uh, the master figurine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, um, if he did intend to send him in, it did work quite well. Cause a lot of the doctors kind of assumed he was behind it. Yes. Yeah. Um, Although the fifth doctor is quite smart at figuring it out, because we, when he transmats to the capital, mm-hmm. he's saying, "Oh, it, it was probably a high-ranking person who was behind this, possibly behind you, because because he knows, obviously, the time scoop's been used." Yeah. So he's he's yeah. So that would have to involve someone who's still on Gallifrey and has, um, has had the ability to find this old machinery. Yeah. And he also and, figures out that there's the tracker in the transmat beacon. Yes, because the Cybermen have been able to find them quite yeah. easily. So anyway, after um, the fifth Doctor arrives in the death zone, uh, we've got the Doctor and Susan reunited in the Dalek scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said before, that's a scene that the story could do without, even though it was a it, it involved the Dalek. Mm-hmm. And you think it was underutilised? Yes, I mean, because... The Daleks are incredibly important in the history of Doctor Who. One, they're the villain's most iconic villain. But they also ensured the show's continued success because even though the very first story, An Unearthly Child, got some attention, it was the second story which featured the Dalek which really catapulted the show into into the stratosphere. It was massively, massively popular. And for many years you had Dalek mania. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have the 20th anniversary special, which is designed to celebrate 20 years of this television show, 
in in an absolutely massive way uh, to have a Dalek appear for all of five minutes. To, um, I mean, at least the Dalek appears, and I actually I think the scene's quite good. I like the set; it's quite atmospheric. Um, so I, I like I like that, and the fact it's the first Doctor and Susan who encounters it um, ties it all the way back to the sixties. So that's mm. quite nice. But the fact that it's it's in there for all of five minutes, yeah, uh, roughly, it it yeah, it does feel a bit uh, a bit underutilized. And considering that entering the Dark Tower is supposed to be part of the game of Rassilon, and it um, trying to figure out how to get in, um, you've got the Dalek, you've got the Dalek, and you've also got the Cybermen, mm-hmm. who are both kind of geniuses. You know, they can they can figure things out. Um, their intelligence doesn't come across, and in fact, the Cybermen come across as quite gullible before they die. <laughs> Especially when um, the Master's doing his hopscotch across the floor, and they just don't realise. Yeah, I think up until that point, the uh, I think the Cybermen were actually used quite well, but I think um, they are they, they are seen as this as this relentless thing that that you know is is constantly there and and threatening and that you do get the sense that there's there's an awful lot of them there seems to be a lot of squads of cybermen around yeah. so you've got the main ones who part them party themselves up with the master for example you've got the yeah. ones who are after the third doctor and uh, sarah and then you've got the ones who try to blow up the tardis yeah um so there's the sense that there's an awful lot of them they're constant there's this constant threat and I think it's that moment when they're talking about, you know, whether they should trust the master and that uh, they don't really have to honour their promise to him because, uh, what's the phrase? Promises to aliens have no validity or blinds, something along those lines. Um, so that's all quite good. But yeah, they do, they do get... Um, that whole scene with the chessboard's a bit odd. Yeah. Although when they're talking to the master... And the saber manager, he's the saber leader or whatever, but he's saying to the other saber man that they won't honor the deal and they'll destroy the master. <laughs> They're talking so loudly, and he's just stood behind them. <laughs> yeah, it is, and I think because uh, cause there's a moment when it looks like they've walked off. <laughs> then it cuts to them in close shot where they're conversing with each other, and you're going right, okay, that's fine. And then it cuts to a wide shot where they're just a few feet behind the master. And Anthony Ainley's played it like, I've heard what they've just said. <laughs> and just going, well, yeah, because they've just spoken very loudly <laughs> behind you. And of course, you, yeah, I thought <laughs> that could have been blocked a bit better, I think. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. There's a few little bits and pieces where the acting's just noticeably bad. Um, I was just watching it last night. And my wife kind of came in the room and she was watching a bit. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where um, the third Doctor and Sarah are driving along and Bessie. And then then they stop and the the third Doctor has a, has a good look around him. And then he's like, oh, look, and there's the dark tower. Mm-hmm. And it surely has been towering over them this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he had to stop the car and look ahead just to see it. Yeah, I and don't How think... did he notice that? Yeah, I th- that is funny. I don't think that's a case of bad acting. No, I, no, I, 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 that's not I, what I meant. But you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's a, I think that's a bit more of. I think the the directing needs yeah. to be a bit tighter, and because this was directed by Peter Moffat, um, and I don't think he was perhaps one of the best directors for Doctor Who. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not to say he's awful, but I mean because um, he directed episodes of All Creatures Great and Small, EastEnders, Juliet Bravo, amongst others. And I think he was probably a very good director for um, straightforward drama. Mm-hmm. But in terms of something like Doctor Who, I mean, he's directed State of Decay, and that's a very good story mm-hmm. and handled very well. And he directed The Visitation of Mordron Undead. So I think in terms of Doctor Who, if there's something a bit gothic or a bit atmospheric, he deals. He, he's able to really um, do... He's really able to direct those stories particularly well. Mm-hmm. But when it's something which is a bit more harder science fiction, The Five Doctors being a good example, and he also directed The Twin Dilemma and The Two Doctors, um, maybe he's not... He's not as good because it's sort of like with, you know, State of Decay is a very um, sort of atmospheric gothic story and, and that comes across very well. Mm-hmm. The Visitation is a, is an historical story and quite atmospheric and he handles that quite well. Same with Mordron Undead in the sense that there's this atmosphere of these aliens who live forever and want to die and there's sort of like there's a, this atmosphere um, which he's able to bring to proceedings quite well but something with the five doctors i think i think this would have been fantastic if um peter grimwade had directed it okay and i think the original idea because jonathan turner originally approached waris hussein who directed an earthly child and marco polo but waris hussein i don't think was available then he approached um douglas canfield who's one of the most accomplished directors to work on doctor who he would have been Fantastic, but unfortunately that didn't come through. Um, I don't think Peter Moffat does uh, does a particularly poor job, but there were just these these one or two moments we've just mentioned, which is just going ah, that could have been a bit tighter or handled mm-hmm. a bit better. Yeah. There is another scene my wife was laughing at um, when the first Doctor and Susan sit down in a field and then just say, "Look, grandfather, to the TARDIS," mm-hmm. and it's like thirty meters in front of them. And my wife was saying, is that old man blind or something? <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of funny. There's, there's two scenes we've just mentioned which has something very much in common, which is um, this... Because really, for that scene to work, I think that you know Susan should have like turned a rocky, rocky outcrop or something like that, and then she sees the TARDIS. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of those things, well, it's been in plain sight the whole time they've been there. Yeah, they've, wa- they've probably walked a mile across a flat plain. Yes. And they've only just seen it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so back in the scene with the Dalek, mm-hmm. um, when the side of the corridor is blown open and you see the Dark Tower, mm-hmm. um, Susan acknowledges the fact that it's Gallifrey. Yeah. And will this be the first TV acknowledgement of her being Gallifreyan? I don't think they've ever intended to have ambiguity about whether she's his granddaughter or not. But, you know, since the Time Lord culture was introduced after her time, mm-hmm. this is the first time she's mentioned the word Gallifrey, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So I think during the William Hartnell era, it was perfectly clear that she was literally the Doctor's granddaughter. There was mm-hmm. no ambiguity of that. And then later on, as the show's progressed with these things, you know, we find out he's a Time Lord, later on um, from the planet Gallifrey and so on. So it's sort of been inferred through that that 
Susan must therefore be a Time Lord. But yeah, I, I think uh, probably this is the first time in the season where it's uh, in the in the show rather where it's clearly indicated that mm-hmm. she is Gallifreyan. Yeah, that and therefore a Time Lord. Yeah, yeah. There's a big finished story that came out in time for the 50th anniversary called The Beginning um, narrated by Caroline Ford and and includes Terry Malloy and it, um, it depicts her perspective of when they, her and her grandfather left Gallifrey and they steal the TARDIS and um, the Doctor bumps into Clara outside, that's acknowledged alright, oh, okay so the third Doctor meets Sarah, and obviously it's not quite her Doctor, her current Doctor. It's not the fourth Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have to deal with the abandonment that she's had. Mm-hmm. And she she doesn't even bring it up. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. When she was intro- when they brought Sarah Jane back in uh, the David Tennant story, School Reunion, which I think is a very good story, uh, and there's an awful lot going on in it, in it, in, with regards to um, being a companion of the Doctor and the motion that all that entails, the one thing that never sat right with me was how emotional Sarah was. Still, mm-hmm. after all these years, with how she left the Doctor, because from she's you know Sarah Jane's always struck me as someone who's very you know strong and um, uh, and from the moments that we've seen. Since she departed in the in the hand of fear, so we have seen her in um, Canaan and Company and the Five Doctors. Obviously, the, the the Doctor is someone who she still has you know, tremendous fondness for, mm-hmm. but has managed to you know has managed to move on and get on with her life. Um, so I think that the the issue with being being abandoned. Uh, and so on. I think that's something that is brought on more with because of the episode school school reunion, rather than how the how how Elizabeth Sladen and the writers of the show saw the character at the time of the Five Doctors. If that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. There's a remark in School Reunion mm-hmm. um, between Sarah Jane and the Tenth Doctor. When she says, you've regenerated. And he says, ooh, half a dozen times since we last met. Mm-hmm. And that's right from the perspective of the fourth Doctor. Um, was That would be, half a dozen times would be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That would be the tenth Doctor from the fourth onwards. But the five Doctors throws a spanner in the works. Because she's met the fifth Doctor. Which which means it's one short of half a dozen times. And that's where the War Doctor kind of fits in, in my mind. Oh, right, so, the... so I feel like in, in School Reunion, David Tennant is acknowledging the War Doctor in that scene. Mm, I never thought... Right, okay, I never thought of that. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, I suppose the War Doctor does clear up that continuity. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, that's that over with. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> So maybe the new since 2006 that they wanted John Hurt in there somewhere. It's all part of the plan. <laughs> yeah. So Bessie gets around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then she dies. <laughs> yeah. Hit <laughs> by a meteorite. Poor Bessie, yeah. <laughs> that um, that scene initially when 
Sarah encounters the third Doctor <laughs> is a bit uh, is a bit of a funny one because Sarah's supposed to fall down this ravine and get rescued. Yeah. But the geography of the location that they were using, you can tell it's just a gentle slope. Yeah. So th- that's a bit funny. It's one of the frustrating things because actually I think on the whole, I think The Five Doctors is is actually a good, enjoyable story. But when you look at some of the some of the things that was decided for the story which didn't materialise, you kind of go, oh, it could have been so much better because what was originally planned for that scene was um, a moment between Sarah enc- encountering the third Doctor mm-hmm. and a group of Autons. Oh, okay. And the whole idea was for that scene was they were going to be threatened by these Autons and it was going to be... Um, it was all going to lead up to a moment when an Auton is about to... appears to about to blast the, uh, the Doctor at uh, blank range. An Auton has a... a, a has a tan gun to the the doctor's head and then they all collapse so they originally appear as these these dead plastic things then obviously it's established that the mannequins then they all come to life and start attacking and chasing the doctor and sarah and then they all just seem to collapse at the end of it and that's one of those things that go oh i wish they did that i mean one because i love the autons i think they're a great uh i think they're a great addition to the pantheon of doctor who monsters yeah and the fact that it was it was written originally in the script, and I think they ran out of time. They just physically weren't able to do it. But it's just one of those things. When you find out, it's just going, oh, I wish they did that. So the first Doctor meets the fifth shortly after this. Yeah. And they seem to get on all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is something that I forgot about, but it reminded me of... Um, David Bradley's Doctor in Twice Upon a Time, um, when the first Doctor in this story um, sends Tegan off to get some refreshments. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I'd completely forgotten about that, but for, yeah, funny enough, that reminded me, because the whole thing in uh, Twice Upon a Time, one of the things that they did sort of emphasise a bit was maybe... The social how, attitude, yeah. Yeah, the, the social attitude, and maybe, um, maybe there was sexism in the 1960s of Doctor Who, and Maybe that's something that we can look at another time. In terms, of, but I always thought that was massively overstated in Twice mm. Upon a Time. It was something that I felt was uh, I felt a bit uncomfortable with because my view was that yeah, okay, the attitudes of the nineteen sixties towards women is completely different to the attitudes of now. And yeah, maybe you can look at classic Doctor Who in the from our current attitudes of women equality and so on. Maybe there are moments in there which are a bit questionable. But I don't think the first Doctor himself was sexist. I can't remember of any particular moments of that. Until now. <laughs> Until now. Um, yeah, it was rather funny because uh, Janet Fielding has said that originally it was she was just uh, told to go and fetch the tea. But she was just going, no, I'm not doing this. This is absolutely insane. So then the scene actually had to be rewritten because of Janet Fielding. Got, you know, quite rightly questioning that. Yeah, and then it was you know it was just quickly rewritten where the doctor you know just goes, oh, uh, Turlo, you go and help." And then they've got this really elaborate setup in the console room when they're having tea and sandwiches and stuff. Yeah, it's quite nice to to see the uh, the first doctor enjoy a bit of pineapple. That was a strange scene. <laughs> I feel like there's some context I'm just not 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 reading. Yeah, because uh, the, the, there's a massive there's a massive deal that the first doctor starts eating some pineapple. And it's just. A, a, <laughs> 
is this a metaphor for something that I'm missing? I don't know, get yeah. you, but yeah. So the second Doctor and the Brick are walking through the death zone. Mm-hmm. And he realises the he realises where they are. And he speculates that um, they could be playing the game of Rassilon right now. Mm-hmm. And that he could be watching them. Um, so that's another good observation by the Doctor mm-hmm. in this story. Um, each of the Doctors are piecing the whole thing together in different ways, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously in this story, the first Doctor stays in the TARDIS um, and Susan goes off with the fifth Doctor. So already they're mixing up the dynamics a little bit here. Yes, and yeah, that was quite nice. And I think, I, I mean, one of the things which is a bit of a shame, and I know that it, it irritated Caroline Ford at the time, was the because Terran Sticks though are always a good homage to the way that uh, Terry uh, Terry Nation uh, mm. had written certain things into his stories where Susan would sprain her ankle, so he brought that back in. Carolyn Ford wasn't particularly happy with that because it's just like, oh, for goodness sake, really? And then that indisposes her. So it's a bit of a shame that um, even though they've, they've shaken up their dynamic, which is quite nice, um, she then gets shunted back into the TARDIS. It's a so shame because you want her to have grown as a character by now, but she's still just the person that sprained her ankle. Yeah, I mean, to have, to have Susan come back into the show should, be, should really be a massive deal. Yeah, um, especially given her relationship to the Doctor, and if you're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the show, I mean, because it's if you look at the very first episode, it's Susan, the mystery surrounding her character, which kickstarts everything. Yeah, it would have been quite nice had Susan been written in a way where she's where yeah she is more involved. Yeah, I'm, I think if she was brought back today, it would be more of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's criminal now that. Ian and Susan haven't been brought in in a major capacity in some way. Well, at least uh, if it hasn't been discussed behind the scenes, that's a bit of a shame. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things as well. It was it would have been so, such a nice thing had Nicholas Courtney been involved with the new series prior to yeah. his death. I mean, yes, he, he, he appears in an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventure, so at least we've got that. But um, Nicholas Courtney should have been brought back. Yeah, um, and I think I get the impression that Stephen Moffat um, would have brought him back because you've got the Russell T Davis era tiptoeing around um, the brig and avoiding bringing him back mm-hmm. and replacing him in some episodes with um, other high ranking characters, and then you've got the Stephen Moffat era reminiscing about the brig and making him such an important character he has such a presence uh, obviously when the 11th Doctor has a phone call about the Briggs death yes, that flips a switch in his head and he's able to face up to is it his death at the time that he's run away from or something and well, anyway obviously we've got the stuff with um, Kate Stewart mm-hmm. and then we've got the Brig is obviously a Cyberman at one stage as well. Mm-hmm. So so I get the impression that if it was in Stephen Moffat's area, Nicholas Courtney would have been included. Yeah, I see what you mean. But then having said that, I wonder if it was just sort of a thing of going this, this, very, this remarkable actor who had a massive impact on the show and played one of the most beloved characters is no longer with us. At least try and acknowledge him in some form. 
Mm-hmm. I wonder if he was still alive, whether Stephen Moffat had, would have written those things in. I mean, obviously, he wouldn't have written the uh, the scene where the, the Doctor finds out about the the Brigadier's death. But I no. wonder if he would have written in the, the thing where he's become a Cyberman. Yeah, I know. I suspect not. I mean, we don't know. I mean, we're just speculating. Yeah. Um, but it seems a bit of a loss. I mean, you don't want the show to constantly reflect, you know, constantly look back on its continuity because it will never move forward. But I think with certain things like bringing Susan back would be quite nice. And especially because Car- Caroline Ford is still alive. But, you know, giving her age, it's, you know, hopefully she'll have many, many, you know, she'll have many more years uh, left alive. But, you know, everyone passes away. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that there were, there were some moments in the Peter Capaldi era where you see a photograph of her. That's right, yeah. It'd be nice to have William Russell in. Um, obviously, he's in um, the the documentary drama and adventure in space and time, briefly. Yes, yeah, yeah, he plays the uh, BBC and, doorman. And he's got so much energy to him. I mean, we we met William Russell at the anniversary as well. Yes, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would have been more than capable of making an appearance. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. So it's a shame that the poor master uh, isn't believed by anyone. He's trying his hardest, isn't he? He is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, given his his form, you can't blame the doctors. Mm-hmm. But it, but the, it is interesting that he the master is written in a way where he's perfectly willing to actually help the doctors, and he's yeah. given that really interesting line, which is a, a universe without the doctor scarcely bears thinking about. Just really interesting. An interesting re- thing for him to say. Yeah, yeah, uh, indeed. Um, so it's quite an interesting thing where they go right. He 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 is actually willing to help the doctor. Yeah, and it's interesting that line he gives. He really believes what he's saying, mm-hmm. and you can see he's he's thinking about the ramifications of that. Yes. In his eyes, you know, it's interesting. It is, yeah, and so. Yeah, so it's 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 a good performance by Anthony Ainley, really selling that moment. But yeah, he, uh, he feels he feels genu- genuinely hurt uh-huh. uh, that you know his, his services of help have been scorned <laughs> and refused. They're just like, well, sort this. I'll just go back to killing you. Uh, <laughs> and I love that bit with the uh, with the brigadier just sneaking up behind him and going, "Nice to see you again," before oh. <laughs> before decking him one. Oh, that him that really place. bugs me. It's like, uh, as soon as we realise that Barusa is the antagonist, mm-hmm. then the master's just taking out the picture. I don't know, that really bugs me. I thought, um, well, I would have preferred if the master's narrative in this story had kind of evolved at the end and played an important role. Oh, so I mean, I never thought of it like that. I thought it was—I uh, always quite liked that he was this presence, a former villain of of the Doctor who was who was on this occasion willing to to actually help. But the Doctor's are basically going, "Are you expecting us to believe this?" Yeah. And I do, I, I do actually like that moment with the, with the Brigadier just going, "Nice to see you again." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, but I would have liked it if it had got to the point where the Master did get the upper hand at some point. Mm. But no, I I do like what you were saying about the brig. Yeah. So, with regards to the master and the first doctor, 
you've got him not acknowledging who he is. Um, and in the TARDIS, Tegan is openly naming the Master um, in front of the First Doctor. And then there's never this realisation from the First Doctor of who he is. As the Master says to the Doctor, oh, believe it or not, we were at the Academy together. Yes. So it's not it's not ignored in the story that um, they've got this um, prehistory um, before his appearance in the show, but I think it's 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 curious that um, the first I didn't come to realise who he was. No, but I suppose it makes sense because in terms of the Doctor, um, he's he doesn't really become a villain until the third incarnation. Uh-huh. And I think it was, I've never read it, but I think The Virgin Missing Adventures had a book in which um, the second Doctor encounter, encounters the Master. N- not when he's the villain, but it's it's the repercussions of what happens at the end of it makes him become the Master. All right, so there's no reason for the ma- for the Doctor to suspect it would be the Master. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, so after this scene... Um, the fifth doctor has transmitted to the capital, obviously, mm-hmm. and he suspects a very important time lord must be using the time scoop. Yeah. Um, and obviously he correctly guesses um, that there must be a tracker in the recall device. Mm-hmm. Um, does the doctor suspect the Castellan? Do you think at this point, or the president? I think he's probably keeping his options open. Yeah. Um, I think he probably knows it's not the Castellan because he's encountered him before in yeah. Ark of Infinity. And the description that he offers the Castellan later on, which was, you know, he was, you know, he could be narrow minded and f- f- be quite draconian in following something he thought was right. But uh, at the heart of it, he was nonetheless a good man. Mm hmm. Um, and and likewise, um, the Doctor's got a history with Barusa. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's another one of those instances where you might not have a reason to suspect him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that the only thing was I wasn't sure if the fifth Doctor, doctor was implying it was one of them. Yeah, he's he's probably saying look, it's, it's, um, yeah, I think I think at the very least in that scene he's basically saying um, you're suspect. So going back out into the death zone, the mm-hmm. third Doctor and Sarah Jane come face to face with the Raston warrior robot. Do you think this film was um, a poorly executed film on screen, even though it was probably a really good concept on paper? No, I don't think so. I think I think it's handled quite well. I think, uh, as you say, I think it's a ve- I think it's a very good idea, um, but I think the way that it's realised, giving. No, I think I think it looks quite good, and they got um, they got a dancer to play the robot, so someone who was very, f- someone who was very very physically fit, uh, and had you know sort of balletic movements to give to give the robot a um, a, a, a smooth um, form of movement. So That's no, good because thought... it's a very inorganic um, kind of movement to the to the robot, yeah. Yeah, and I think so. I think it. I think it. Lo- I think it looks good. I think it moves good. I think the the way that it was handled was was quite well. And I think it's a great idea, 
and you really get the sense of threat. And that's it's quite nice that for a 20th anniversary special, which the whole thing, it's looking on the history of the show. Yeah. It does bring in this, uh, this something new, um, which it's like, oh, this is something unfamiliar. So yeah. it aids a sense of, yeah. of danger there. But, and I think that the scene where he completely massacres the Cybermen, I think is really, really well directed. And in fact, funny enough, that, that, that moment wasn't directed by Peter Moffat. That, those, that scene was directed by John Nathan Turner. Ah, right. It's a really graphic scene. It just keeps going and going, doesn't it? Yeah, and yeah. dismembered and the vomit and silver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. It's really, the hands, really exciting. And the dismembered hands still moving. Uh-huh. And they're all getting impaled. It's really good, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a book by Terence Dix um, called The Eight Doctors from BBC Books, and it's the first story in the Eighth Doctor range. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and in that story... Um, Terence Dix does revisit the Rast and Warrior robots. I haven't really, I haven't read the book in maybe ten or fifteen years, so it's all in my distant memory. Mm. Um, but he does elaborate more on what the robots were, and I think they they are left behind from um, an ancient civilization since before the Time Lords. I'm, oh. I might be getting my facts completely wrong. We'll see. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give it another read. It's just a nice little touch that Terence Dix has um, elaborated more on that. I think it's such a good... I, I mean, I don't know. Do you think the Russell and Warrior robot should come back in the show at some point? Well, possibly, yeah. Um, they definitely come across as quite a big threat, like the Weeping Angels. Mm-hmm. How it's a, it's a villain that you you can't react to quick enough. But you could probably beat by um, using your intelligence or anticipating it, maybe. Yeah, because yeah. I'm wondering. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential there, and I think it would be a great thing if if they brought it back. But at the same time, I wonder if I wonder if it's just quite nice that it's this unique thing in the Five Doctors, and mm. you know, it should just remain there. But at the maybe. same time, it's sort of it's it is a very good idea, and it's such a shame not to tap into that. I think it was really memorable. I thought it was a good part of the story. Yeah, I think uh, I think arguably it's funny enough. I think it's probably the uh, the best part of the show. Mm-hmm. So going back to the capital, um, the dark scrolls were found in the Castellan's room. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never occurred to me until now to think of this, but were the scrolls a fake? Oh, I never thought of that. I don't think they are. I think it's probably something that Rassilon has. Um has encountered and has used the information contained in them in order to get access to the time scoop. Uh-huh. Um, but then but he's planted it in the Clasterland's room just just in case he needs to have a scapegoat. Yeah, I was wondering if he'd planted the fake scrolls in the Clasterland's room. But um, it, it always occurred to me that it was the genuine article. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another thing in the 8th Doctor's novel. I think um, Terence Dix has included some of the text from the from the Black Scrolls of Rassilon. Oh, right, okay. Again, I might be completely wrong. <laughs> There's been so many books. And then when the Castellan is killed, what do you think happened in the corridor? Was he really armed and trying to escape? I don't know what was being implied there. Oh, like, did he choose to face death rather than, than the mind probe? Um, or was he just executed on the spot and the gun was placed on the floor? Or was he just trying to make a run for it? 
Well, this is the thing. So I think that if you were watching the um, the televised, the, the original broadcasted version. Yeah. I think it comes across that the Castellan was armed and prepared to escape. Whether that means he's guilty or not, as we later find out he's not, um, he's probably in such a desperate position. Um, he was armed and, uh, and was prepared to escape and was was shot by yeah. the guard who just saw him armed and was preparing to escape and so the guard was handing out was dealing with his responsibility as normal yeah so i think as it's seen in you know you take it at face value if you watch the special edition there's an extra scene where the doctor and chancellor Fl- uh, flavia are having a conversation yes i was just going to get to this yeah um and that's a scene in the special edition, and they're t- you know, and she mentions I'll I'll talk t- I'll talk to the captain. There may be more to be learned from him. Mm. So that infers that maybe there's more to it than meets the eye. Yeah, that's the one thing I picked up on. Yeah, if you read the novelization, which I'll come on to because I've read the novelization of it, um, it's made perfectly clear that the guard was instructed by. Barusa to kill the Castellan. Ah, really? Hmm. Okay. That's interesting because I thought Barusa would um, try and keep everything a bit close to his chest and not include anyone. No, that's true. But I think this is probably the, the one occasion where he's, you know, he's put some things in preparation should he need to just to to give him some, some more time. Yeah. And I suppose... Uh, once he his plan had succeeded, mm-hmm. he wouldn't he would have needed um, some people on his side, wouldn't he? Some high ranking um, officials, and um, yeah. well, especially like military security stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why do you think Barusa didn't want the fifth dot to return to the death zone? Because I think at that point he'd 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 been at the capital. Um, had probably gleaned some information, may have given him some more time to think. At least with, uh, at least with him there, Barusa can keep an eye on him and control what he sees, uh, and as a result, try and control the thought process a bit, right. rather than rather than keep him out of sight and maybe prevent his plan. Yeah, well, that makes more sense. Yeah. So then we we'll go back into the death zone. And uh, the brig and the second doctor go in the bottom entrance underneath the tower, mm-hmm. and then they meet the Yeti. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the second doctor, um, he's around a lot of fire there. He's got the torch that he lights, and um, he's also got like a flare that's like an explosive that he throws ah. at the Yeti. Yeah. And he's in a very enclosed set, and he's got that coat which is probably really flammable. <laughs> it just came across as a bit of a hazard in my mind. The, the, it did, but the I mean, lucky he didn't die. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the doctor and the brig um, underground, the f- they find a door that they enter, mm-hmm. and they walk towards it. And it surprised me how tiny the door was. It reminded me of um, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory when they're walking down the corridor. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that bit when um, when the second Doctor is saying, I don't like this at all, either something or some someone wants us to go inside. 
after you, Brigadier. It's like, no, no, after <laughs> you, Doctor. I quite like that. I want to just think it's a, it's a nice moment in of itself, but it sort of um, goes into a bit of a, a bit of the second Doctor's character that we saw in the Three Doctors. Yeah. You know, with the whole thing with the coin flip and like trying. Yeah. You know, this is potentially dangerous. So let someone else go ahead in front of me. Um, so I quite like that. I thought that, that that was a nice moment. That was a nice touch. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. And then we've got um, Sarah Jane and the Third Doctor. They're going to enter through the top, the top entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a great throne arm on arm on him, hasn't he? Oh yeah, um, yeah, he has. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, Sarah throws a rock down the hill. She's like, Doctor missed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was again. That that was something that was in the special edition, not the originally transmitted version. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's for. I mean, it's 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 a nice moment to see, but I think it's I think it is a, perhaps a bit silly. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think including it in the special edition particularly adds anything. No. <laughs> I suppose it's a nice, funny moment to 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 alleviate the drama a bit. Because compared to the, compared to the three doctors, the five doctors is a lot more serious. And then um, the first doctor and Tegan, which is another good kind of team up. Yeah. They enter their main door. And um, they approach the floor tiles, and like when um, he gets his money out, and she's like, um, "What do you do? We have to pay to get in?" Yeah. Now, one thing I don't get is how does pie apply? How does that relate to the floor? Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to work that out last night. I feel like there's something, there's something I've missed, or something that wasn't included. <laughs> Some kind of higher math that we can't understand. Yeah. No, I because that's something that's always confused me. So is it the idea that you start, if you use the number pi, so do you start off on the third square, but then is that on the left or the right? And then if it's, because it's, uh, what is it, 3.14159 and... two six five three or whatever the rest of it is. So if you're using pi, because there's no circle involved... So that confuses it. But if you're applying pi to a chessboard, are you if you if the first number's three, so do you step on the third square? But is that do, would you step on the? But how will you determine that it's on the left or the right? Or you ignore that number and then you go if if it's one four one. So the first row you go on the fourth square from the left. The, uh, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. that We're missing a whole kind of cipher or a method to this mm. that needs to put the two together. We'll just say that the Master and the Doctor are incredibly intelligent. They work it yeah. out and it works. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, as a kid watching it, it was good because I learned actually what pi was. The ratio of the circumference of a circle by its diameter. Yeah. Great, I've learned something. But, but, we're, but, of... but we're visualising it as a chessboard. <laughs> but we're visualising it as a chessboard, yeah. But no, that's the thing. Tegan's obviously referring to a circle. So it's like, right, okay. But I'm confused. How can you apply that to a chessboard? And what what is the num? What is the mathematical fo- formula pi? How do you apply? I don't know. We're probably giving this a lot more thought than even Terence Dix did. <laughs> and it's just like right, okay. Somehow you apply the number pi to this board. The master and the doctor know what they're talking about. Great, they overcome it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> and then the master. It seems 
has been using the Cybermen to get past the floor trap, perhaps, or or using the floor trap to kill them. Yeah. Um, and why are the Cybermen so naive? Fair enough, they seem, in a particular way, crossing the path, but then he just hops and skips all the way back. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're naive. I just think they're complacent because they've got this, obviously, superior sense of themselves. Yeah. And they think that this, the master's this idiot uh, who they're able to use. So I just think they're the complacent rather than naive. So we'll get to another point in the story that, which really bugs me. You've got um, Mike Yates and Liz Shaw mm-hmm. and Jamie and Zoe. Yeah. Um, I mean, fair enough, include them if you can, but it's just a little bit irritating, isn't it? Um, include them in that way. I suppose so, but I think... Uh, but I'm, I'd rather have them than not have them. Yeah, and I think that... Right, okay, they, they clearly they were suddenly available and it's, it's just a brief cameo. But I think that the way that it is written into the story, I think's handled quite well, where they, they yeah. clearly use as a way to divert the Doctor from entering the main chamber by tapping into his mind and using his memories of people against him. I think that's actually a really good idea. And it we... It, it, it's uh, it weaves something a bit more into the story, so yeah, it would have been quite nice for them to perhaps appear a bit more fully and a bit more properly into the story. Yeah. But um, I think I'm just nitpicking a bit too much there. It's never bothered me before, but yeah, because it's it's never bothered me either, and I think it's quite nice to have uh, Liz Shaw appear mm-hmm. um, and Mike Yates and Jamie and Zoe and so on. So yeah, I think I know where you're coming from, but. Having said that, though, I think the way that it's written to the story, I think, is quite good. Yeah. And was Zoe's um, dress a bit last minute, do you think? <laughs> yeah. she's just shrouded in bubble wrap. Although she, she wears it quite well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she does. I mean, there's she not owns very... it. <laughs> yeah. There's very few people who can, who can carry the bubble wrap look <laughs> off. And she does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that must have been made at very much the last minute because it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting fashion choice. It's good the way these characters did appear. It adds another dimension to the um, the defences of the Dark Tower. Yeah. And, and part of the game and um, stuff, yeah. I was just wondering, though, just because that we mention it, uh, how how Jamie and Zoe are there, and then the Doctor is able to... The second Doctor is able to realise that, that they're not real because they're able to remember him despite having their memories wiped at the end of the war games. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would mean... That this that this second Doctor is after the War Games. Oh my goodness! I haven't, that did not occur to me. Well, this is the thing. Have you heard of this the season six B theory? No. Well, basically, what it is, it's it, it covers up this continuity error, plus what the Doctor is doing in the two Doctors. It's this idea that following the Doctor's trial, later on, the the, the CIA pluck him out of time. And make a deal with the second Doctor, which is, you can have a bit more time in this incarnation if you do some work for us. If you agree to this, then you can have Jamie, for example, come back and have some more adventures with you. Wow, that, a... that really does fit the tie the continuity up well, doesn't it, with the two Doctors? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it covers that continuity. Terence Dix actually sort of approved the idea, because... I don't know how he became aware of it because this was a theory that the fans came up with. 
So he, he later on became aware of that and I really liked that idea. So he even basically made it canon in the novels he wrote. Right, okay. That's cool. So going back to the fifth Doctor, Bruce has vanished mm-hmm. and he's got the harp of Russell on there. <laughs> um, it takes him a while to see the music that's right in front of him, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't see the wood for the trees. It is one of those things that you would go, uh, maybe the Doctor could have spotted it uh, a bit earlier. But having, you know, I think that's probably a nitpicky moment because the way that's written and the way that Peter Davison performs that moment when he's going, oh, maybe, you know, it's been under my nose the whole time. It's it's quite good. So then we're getting on to another good scene in the, in the show when the first Doctor and Tegan enter the tomb and we get that great music. And I know it's edited slightly different with the TV and special edition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think. But that's that's a cool um kind of wide shot of the tomb. And then of course we've got the um old high Gallifreyan kind of um writing on glyphs on the column which looks like um a TARDIS console. Yeah, I suppose it does a bit, yeah. Yeah. It's got the same amount of sides and it's got a column in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that must have been I've never noticed that before, but yeah, that's uh that must be deliberate. That's quite a nice um design thought. It's a bit um I forgot who, I forgot who it was, but funny enough, um, I came across this uh, this Twitter feed recently, which was it, it mentioned the five doctors, and a fan had noticed something, and I was like, I've never noticed that before either. Oh, that was it because it was something that Gareth Roberts, who I follow on Twitter, um, he'd commented on it, which was basically, oh, that's a lot more thought than I would have expected from eighties Doctor Who. And loads of fans were going, I've never noticed it before. So you know when you see, uh, because now we're in the, the actual tomb of Rassilon, so you see Rassilon um, lying there. Yeah. You know the clothes that he's wearing? Yeah. It's a gold version of the Time Lord costumes that they used in the 1960s. Is it really? Yeah. All right, I've never noticed that. Obviously, <laughs> no, no, I, I, neither have I. I was just like, oh yeah. So when I went back to watch it, uh, when it came to that, I was like, so it is. And it was yeah. so someone I've forgotten who it was, unfortunately, but someone had noticed that on Twitter, and it was loads and loads of Doctor Who fans basically commenting and going, no, I've never noticed that either. So it's just yeah. it, it's something that's taken all these years. A nice little touch of of costume design. Yeah, and no one and no and no one noticed it before. <laughs> But at least we can appreciate it now. So after the first Doctor and Tegan arrive in the tomb, we've got a, a whole load of reunions going on. Obviously, Tegan meets Sarah Jane. The second Doctor arrives, meets everyone, and then the Brig arrives and meets up with Tegan and Sarah. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah. So elsewhere, out in the um, death zone, we've got... Turlo and Susan in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And yeah. the Cybermen are constructing this bomb around the TARDIS. And this subplot kind of goes on for quite a while, doesn't it? We'll, we'll see them um, piecing this bomb together. Mm-hmm. Do you think we needed that little subplot there? And why why was it there? Was it just to add a bit more threat? I think it was there to add a bit more threat, but also to maybe give Turlo and Susan a bit a bit of something to do. And that goes back into what we were talking about before. Getting Susan her ankle sprained and shunting her off into the TARDIS. Um, I think that... I mean, that's a bit of a shame because 
Susan should have been a bit more involved. But I think that 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 basically gives her the ability to keep Turlos in company. Mm. Yeah, because they were just totally grounded, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, because this is I think this is the one time that the show could ever celebrate Doctor Who in this way, um, which is it's a big major anniversary. And we'll get as many as the companions and all the doctors up until that point involved. Yeah. Um, you couldn't do something like that now. It's 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 a heck of a lot to deal with as as a writer. So I think Terence Dix does does a tremendous job, um, given the amount of people he has to work for, the amount of people that he has to write for, rather. Um, but with something of this scale, it's I think it's. It's rather unfortunate, but it is inevitable that you know um, some of the characters are basically going to be underwritten, and I think Susan and Turlo are those two characters. So this plot, well, I suppose it does serve one one purpose, which is to finally get the TARDIS into the tomb. Rather, you know, so, so there's a there's a bit of trepidation there. Rather than the third Doctor reverses the polarity, the force field's been let down. The TARDIS can then land. Mm. There's a bit of there's a bit of build up and apprehension there. So I suppose it works from that point of view. So after this, the fifth Doctor finds the time scoop and Barusa. And one thing that's always bugged me is why does Barusa constantly change clothes when he goes in his secret room? <laughs> I never thought of that. Just yeah. Well, I, I say suppose... constantly is obviously there's the initial scene in the story. Yeah. And now he's obviously vanished. He's put his his black robes on. I suppose maybe he's just a man that has a a, a, a tremendous sense of occasion. But and he, no, always, and he, and he always no dresses there. for it. <laughs> dresses. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, dresses for the occasion. Yeah, sorry, you got to you can't say that line in a, unless you say it in a very camp and extravagant way. <laughs> I love that um, one of the commentaries on um, the movie and Eric Roberts is about to walk down the stairs and McGann's like, are these stairs going to light up now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they should have done. <laughs> <laughs> should be a fan remaster that does that. Yeah, it does. The camp edition. Do, 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 do. Yeah, that needs to happen. <laughs> So, um, this story had me wondering, were Barusa's intentions all that bad? So, obviously, he was being quite selfish. He wanted immortality, but he also wanted the opportunity to fulfil everything he wanted to do in office. Yeah, but um, should he have that right? Because, basically, he wants to be Lord President forever eternal yeah yeah he basically so that's that's tyrannical yeah he's he's willing to put people's lives in danger in order to do that and the castellan was killed as a result um so yeah this man's barking mad it's he's the last person that you would want uh do you think he started off with any good intentions yes i think so i mean from from what we've seen prior to this Prior to this, in uh, in previous adventures of Barusa, and I think it's even explained that you know he's done tremendous service. It was only right for him to become Lord President. Yeah. So I think, um, I think initially, you know, he probably was a good Lord President, but then the, you know, the power's gone to his head, and he wants to be President forever. Um, 
and that you know and as i said you know that's quite tyrannical and all the rest of it so he may have once been a good man but now he's turned into a complete arse and of course uh barusa controls the fifth doctor and mm. then they arrive in the tomb in the tomb yeah um and the fifth doctor comes across as quite different to all the other doctors because he's he's comes across as the youngest one yeah um and he was obviously even though he's quite strong-willed he was susceptible to um this mind controlled by Barusa, and then we've got um, something you'd mentioned. Was it last week about the telepathic um, communication between all the doctors? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you drew a parallel between the scene in the three doctors when they all make telepathic contact, mm-hmm. and then the scene in the tomb when you've got the first three doctors willing the fifth doctor to break free of this um, of this link. And you've in mm-hmm. in the camera does go between these characters, and you can see there's something um, something going on beyond what we can understand. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was a kid when I was watching this, the, it, it did kind of freak me out a bit that the Doctor was suddenly taken over and he had no. I mean, because this was the hero, suddenly uh, the villain Barusa had removed his free will. Um, that always kind of that always freaked me out a bit that the fact that you know someone would be able to um, remove the ability for you to to act in your own way and get effectively you know get rid of your liberty in that way that yeah. always scared me and I think actually you know, that's quite a good idea uh, in the story but yeah going back to that point I mean I never it took me ages to realize that that, that it was sort of the doctors connecting telepathically to break. it makes more sense doesn't it yeah yeah. And it's sort of like one of those things of going, I don't get why I didn't get it. Was I being stupid or... Do, it, it, I don't is... think I got it originally because when you don't get it, it's it's almost like they're just saying, come on, man, snap out of it. And he walks forward. He's like, oh, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so either... Well, I'm pleased you said that. So, I, so okay. So it wasn't just me then. So either either we're both stupid and we didn't get it, or does that go back to the point of maybe this should this is one of those moments that could have been directed a bit better? Maybe, yeah. To, to make it a bit more clear. Not to the extreme of the third Doctors. No, I mean, I mean, it works in the three Doctors, but if you were to in- implement that in another story, it is a bit tacky. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> so then, Rassilon speaks, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is the game of Rassilon. And then Barusa takes the ring. And I like how, despite what the other Doctors are saying, the first Doctor is like, oh, don't listen to them. Mm-hmm. Take the ring. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is another instance where the, the first Doctor comes across um, as the most, well, not the most intelligent but you know what I was saying last week about how, even though the first doctor was the youngest, he comes across as the wisest sometimes. Yeah, yeah, indeed, and I agree with that. And But also I think on this occasion, he's certainly very ruthless. Mm. You know, because he's, uh, not only has he worked out what this whole thing's about, but he's also very willing for, for, for Barusa to be put away. I love the creepy faces um, encased in the stone. Yeah, that bit's really creepy. But you know the bit that gets that that gets me. It's it's very very brief, 
Um, but it's towards the end, just before you see them turn back into stone, there's a bit where they all smile. Oh, really? Oh, it's so... I mean, because it's, it's a creepy idea anyway, and you see the, the way that they look. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very brief moment. I wish it lasted just a bit longer, so it's a bit more on the button. But yeah, there's a bit where they all smile before they then turn back into stone. Oh, God, it's so creepy. How did I miss this? <laughs> oh, it, oh, yeah, it's disturbing. But uh, that, that's um, a cool fate for someone. Disturbing one, rather. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say, what about you? It's not, no, that's not cool. But yes, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> anyway, so um, Rassilon seems nice enough in this story. Yeah, I think it was... I think one of the things that I liked about this was um, there was the idea of maybe the history of the... the the official history of Rassilon is maybe not entirely true and that he was this uh, tyrannical leader and all the rest of it. So, that, And there is that bit of ambiguity, but given how he appears here and the fact that the fifth doctor at the end says, you know, everything that we know about uh, Rassilon appears to be true. Yeah, maybe he was this wise and benevolent uh, leader. And you yeah. know, and and the fact that the first doctor, you know, actually states, um, you know, Rassilon recognised that anyone who would want immortality was was a danger and needed to be put out of way. Mm-hmm. So when everyone goes off into the TARDIS, mm-hmm. um, which special effects do you prefer? There's one where the TARDISes um, all detach and go off the separate ways, mm-hmm. or we've got the time scoop effect. I think this is one occasion where I prefer the special edition. Yeah. Um, I remember I remember as a kid when I first watched the, the Five Doctors, so it was the original transmitted version. When you saw the, the, the separate TARDISes attach and fly off, I thought that was so cool. I really loved that. Looking back on it now, that's that's one thing that has, in terms of the special effects, has really dated the original. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, no, it's it's not does look a bit ropey so that is one occasion where i do prefer the special edition and it makes sense that it's the time scoop effect because rasselon well it's essentially his technology and he's reversing that effect yes yeah yeah, yeah. so it does fit well and mm-hmm. um, then instantly following this um flavia arrives with the presidential guard and the doctor is appointed president which was a strange moment I suppose so, but I think it, I think it works. Uh, it's a nice, it's a nice payoff to the story. You know, it's been building up to the the major revelation of who this was behind and the reasons for it and all the rest of it, which we've just dealt with. Um, and, you know, and this this is a really really big story for for Doctor Who at the time. And then to have the fact, right? Okay, um, you know, you're suitable to be president. We we're now offering it to you. I think it's quite nice. And the fact that the Doctor doesn't want it and then runs off. Mm-hmm. Which really allows the, the the five Doctors to end on such a fantastic note, which was, you know, you deliberately go on going on the run with your own people in a rackety old TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And then just going, why not? After all, that's how it all started. Yeah, it's a great little ending. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there is a moment in the commentary of one of the versions, whichever it is, and uh, Peter Davison says he wishes he'd played that moment differently and not alluded to the fact that he was going to go on the run. You know, because um, the fifth doctor quite hastily just dashes off. Mm-hmm. And as a viewer, 
you know, he's reluctant to be president and he just wants to go. Yeah. Um, but Peter Davison, in retrospect, wishes he'd played the part differently and not alluded to the fact that he didn't want to become president. And he wishes he'd said, okay, I'll travel there in my TARDIS. And then then he would have revealed it to Tegan inside the TARDIS. And I think I would have preferred that. I think so. I mean, it's been such a long time since I've listened to the Peter Davison uh, commentary, so I completely forgot about that. I think uh, I haven't got a problem with the way that he originally played it. It's it's quite nice. But yeah, I... um, it's quite interesting when you hear actors look back on their performances and go, right, I think you know, I should have tweaked it that way or played it in this particular way. And yeah, I think it's I think it probably would have been better if he if he played it like that. It's it's again allowing the audience to second guess things. Yeah. And I suppose would have made Turlo's and Tegan's initial reaction work a bit more. Because from our point of view, yes, it, it, it it's perfectly clear that the Doctor doesn't really want to, to have the presidency. Yeah. Um, and they should be able to perceive that because they know him so well. Yeah, but then maybe, um, but then maybe you could argue the fact that well, he's just been offered the presidency. The idea that he would run away from his own people with that sort of responsibility, maybe they thought that you know that that doesn't seem likely. Yeah. Um, so uh, it it still works. But now that you've mentioned that, and yeah, I probably I probably agree with him on that one. It maybe would would have worked better, but it's it it's it's still the original performance is still good. So uh, just before we wrap things up, uh, one of the things I did was I read uh, Terence Dix's uh, novelization of the Five Doctors, and when I did this for the Three Doctors, because uh, again Terence Dix had novelized that, it was such. Uh, an enjoyable read, very engaging, and uh, there were some really nice. Um, th- there were a lot of moments which were very similar to the TV series, but a lot of things which uh, Terence Dix had had added, added into the novelization. This one, on the other hand, uh, was a bit of a slog. It doesn't really excite and jump off the page, and it was, it, it, in many cases, it was very, very close to what we get on television. And in fact, there are a lot of cases where. This is actually very close to the special edition version because I know that when they were putting that version together and the way that they arranged some of the scenes when they were doing the special edition, they they arranged it so it followed Terence Dix's script a lot more. Okay. But having said that, though, there are some interesting things. So when they're in the Eye of Orion, uh, it's described as having a, a faint purple haze that hangs in the air, uh, which Terence Dix had, had written into the script originally. So he's written that into the novelization. So that was quite good. One of the interesting things is when we're first introduced to the first Doctor and he's in a he's in the garden, what Terence Dix does is he mentions that the first Doctor's new in the end of his first incarnation. Okay. Which I thought was a bit interesting. So there's the idea that the first Doctor is quite close to regenerating at that point. Which I thought was a an interesting uh thing to add in um that's interesting because in twice upon a time there's a moment unless i've interpreted it wrong um when peter capaldi meets david bradley's first doctor yeah and he says because he's he's regenerating he's he's starting to regenerate his face is all over the place which Mm -hmm. to me that implied that that's why he looks slightly different he's a different actor 
Yeah, and funny enough, when I when I read that, um, that that made me that did make me think of Twice Upon a Time. So I'm wondering if the novelization had because Stephen Moffat was is a fan of Doctor Who. I wonder if that moment in the novelization maybe triggered that. Right, I mean, yeah. maybe not. It was probably something that was his own original idea, but that did occur to me. Funnily enough, as well, when we were talking about Sarah and the whole thing about being abandoned by the Doctor and so on. That is, again, that's something that Terence Dix writes into the novel. So there's this moment where he goes, she had been insisting for some time that all she wanted was to return to Earth and lead a quiet life. But the abruptness of the parting had left Sarah feeling abandoned and more than a little resentful. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't really convey that enough, does she? No, no. So I I think the way that Elizabeth Sladen and the way that the whole thing's portrayed on television is different. Mm-hmm. But I found it interesting that Terence Dix had written that into the no- novelization. Because yeah. the way I see it, whether it's a past incarnation or not, you'd still feel resentful, mm-hmm. um, and you'd want to you'd want to vent that, wouldn't you? Yeah, and then um, following straight on from that, what Terence Dix does is he writes he writes in a bit of a moment with uh, with Susan Foreman. Uh-huh. Um, following the you know saying that this is well after the events of the dollar conversion of earth and you get a little bit of a sense of her life you know earth's been rebuilding um she's effectively living on a farm she's been she's married she's married david campbell so now she's susan campbell yeah um she's definitely she's susan campbell in the audios as well right okay so you get a sense of it because it it, it was never filmed the moment when um, Susan was picked up by the time scoop, but Terence Dix writes that into the novelization, which I thought was a nice touch. All right. The, there's a bit where, when the Doctor encounters Jamie and Zoe, and there's this line, both had been the third Doctor's companion on his travels for many years. Well, that's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> just that I'll point that out. Oh, yeah, and uh, just... just... <laughs> I know. I just, I just, I can't let that go. <laughs> and then just one last thing. I think it's just there's a bit at the end where uh, where they're all in the tomb of Rassilon, and there's a bit where uh, Terence Dix just has Sarah say that she's disappointed that the fourth Doctor isn't there. All oh, right. Okay. Saying that you know she she would have liked to have have met him. Yeah, that, that's a shame. Yeah. So again, the, the... again, if you you can't fit too much. Um, into the story though can you on screen no, otherwise no. it's going gonna, gonna to feel the story's going to feel crowded or it's going to deviate a little bit too much so there's uh, so I don't think it's the greatest novelisation that there is in the target range it, it does feel a bit by the numbers but Terence Dix nonetheless does write in a couple of nice uh, little moments uh, which which are those that I've just mentioned so is there any points in the story that you loved or hated that we haven't covered um, no, I think uh, there's there's definitely nothing that I hated in the story, um, and I think there's a, there's a lot to love. I suppose if there, there is to be a nitpick, I, I think it would have been nice had all the Doctors were on screen at the same time for a bit longer, to have a bit more of an interaction. I think that would have been a bit nice. Yeah. Um, but... I think in terms of my... I think the Roston Warrior Robot is probably my, my favourite bit in the whole story. Yeah. I like the uh, I like the music and the whole thing. Yes, I think uh, Peter Howell's score is excellent. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good. Everyone, 
all the actors involved really bring it their role and are clearly clearly relishing it. Um, I like the fact that the Time Lord mythology was being added to. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I liked um, Richard Hurnell's take on the first Doctor. Um, obviously, it's completely different to David Bradley as well. But yeah, it was kind of a daring thing to do to replace the the most iconic actor who um, created the role. Yeah, it's funny because um, many years ago I did this thing where I went through all the Doctor Who stories in chronological order, but I was reviewing them. I had mm. a blog where I reviewed all the stories. And at the time, I mean, we were going... Oh, when, when would this have been? Maybe 2010? Probably a bit earlier. I can't quite remember, but it was a long time ago. And when I came to reviewing The Five Doctors, I did mention uh, Richard Hurdle playing the first Doctor and how he does a good job. But it's funny because I mentioned at the time that I said the idea of recasting any of the past Doctors is something that wouldn't be considered now. You wouldn't... <laughs> <laughs> how wrong can you be? Yeah. Um, Although I, thought... I would say the same thing now about all the other Doctors. For example, I ca- can you imagine in a few years' time say having Colin Baker recast but it was the thing because I kind of uh, emphasised the point a bit more I said so for example I don't think they would recast the first Doctor no. um, in the in the new series and then I put in brackets I mean can you imagine them recasting the second or the third Doctor yeah if, a few years ago on the anniversary there was a good few leaked set photos, photos of John Hurt and there was a lot of speculation online that he was playing an older Eighth Doctor, and I was thinking, what an odd thing to say, or, or to even think that it would do, <laughs> when we've already got an older Paul McGann. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, okay. Mm. A lot of people were thinking, no, oh, he must be playing the Eighth Doctor when he's old. <laughs> I was thinking, what? <laughs> crazy thing to think, to even think. I know, it's like, we've still got Paul McGann, and he's older <laughs> than what he is now than he was in 1996. Surely Paul McGann should be playing Paul McGann. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never knew that. But I think uh, I think Richard Hurdle does a good job. It's not. I think he does the the right thing where he's not doing an impression. You yeah. get the the get you get the tone and the feel of the first Doctor, but it's Richard Hurdle, you know, performing him in his own way, and it works. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I first watched it, I wasn't as familiar with the first Doctor as I am now, and I remember this the first time I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker that he's the first Doctor, and I still do. It gets a really good balance. He he plays it, he performs it on the same level um, as the other Doctors, mm-hmm. but he doesn't come across with too much authority as the leading character. Yeah, he pitches it perfectly well, and you get a sense of the crotchiness of the first Doctor through his performance, mm-hmm. as, well, as well as the gentle side of him. So no, I think, I think he... I th- I think he does a very, very good job. So, Lee, marks out of 10? I think... it's. A bit, I suppose this comes down to whether I prefer the five Doctors over the three Doctors. And I think in some... There's a part of me that goes, well, I should prefer the three Doctors because not only does the three Doctors celebrate the history of the show at that point, but what it also does is it moves uh, the series forward. So not only is it celebrating its past, but it, 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 uh, it you know it introduces a new character through Omega. But it, it removes the Doctor's exile. 
Yes. So it so it allows the series to go forward. Whereas in comparison, all what the all what the Five Doctors does is just celebrate the history of the show. When the Five Doctors ends, nothing's changed. So from that point of view, you know, you go well. Maybe I should prefer the five. Uh, I should prefer the three Doctors over the five. But I'm so. I, so even though I think in that sense the three Doctors is better, I still prefer the five Doctors. Yeah, um, so do it's, I. It's just so much enjoyable. It has this real sense of scale. I really like the story and everything that's in it. I just I just enjoy it more. Yeah, as um, much as you could weigh up all the bad points, mm, it's still it's still a really good watch. It is a really good watch and and I it's still massively enjoyable. And this is the one time in the show this is the last time that you could celebrate Doctor Who in this way. Like I said before, yeah, uh, where you were getting as many as the companions and 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 all the then all the then doctors, this this sort of thing would never happen again. And actually, in some respects, I think this is probably the most important story of the eighties uh, of Doctor Who. Not necessarily the best. I'm not saying that. I think in terms of the show's pro- popularity, because the show was still massively popular. This was a this was big event television. It was it was a ninety minute separate adventure celebrating 20 years and compare that to five years later when they're celebrating the 25th anniversary the 25th anniversary the silver anniversary is a much bigger thing to celebrate than the 20th yes but what you get is silver nemesis Uh now i'm not talking about the qualities of of that story because we can look at silver nemesis another time but it's not event television at that point you know, it doesn't. It doesn't have that popularity and all the rest of it. So you can mark the show's popularity of the eighties. I think with this, I think this is probably the last high mark of the eighties. Yeah, anyway, I agree, I, I agree with that. Yeah. But anyway, going off, I think off its own merits because I really enjoy the story and it is massively enjoyable, and I do prefer it. I do prefer it over the three Doctors. Probably seven and a half. Yeah, I can't argue with that. Um, funnily enough, I was. Torn between seven and eight, mm. so um, I didn't know we could go point five. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> yeah, that tells that then. So, since we returned to podcasting in the new year, um, this is our first little series of podcasts of the year. Last year we started um, podcasting throughout the whole of the series eleven run, and we covered each of those episodes. Um, and we've dubbed that as kind of Series 0. And now, coming into the new year, we've got a fresh slate. We started from the New Year's Day episode, Resolution. And since then, we've gone into a little bout of multi-Doctor stories. And we've covered The Sirens of Time, The Three Doctors, and this week is The Five Doctors. Um, and Liam, shall we tell them what we're doing next week? Uh, yes, yeah, so it probably won't be any surprise that we'll be having a look at the two Doctors. Um, so we're basically doing a bit of a run of the multi-Doctor stories. Uh, but we will also, quite uh, quite soon, also be looking at some of the Big Finish audio adventures because uh, 2019 marks 20 years of Big Finish uh, doing original Doctor Who audio adventures, but um, which we began with the sirens of time and because that was a multi-doctor who story we thought well that'll give us the the perfect opportunity to look at televised multi-doctor who stories um 
but we won't just be looking exclusively at those. We will be we will be returning to big uh, big finish at some point, uh, starting with Phantasmagoria. And eventually, um, in the next month or so, we'll inevitably get to Scratchman, and we'll be talking about that. And if there's any other stories that anyone would like us to talk about, um, please get in touch um, on Twitter or Facebook. So you can find us on, at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash cloisterbell. We're on Twitter at podcastbell. Uh, we're also on Instagram as well, which I mentioned before, where you can find us at cloister underscore bell. Um, yes, and you can subscribe to our podcast in a few different ways. You can go on SoundCloud and subscribe there. And also, if you you can access the iTunes podcast store, we're on there. And while you're there, um, please make sure to give us a rating um, out of five stars. Uh, yes, preferably if you were preferably the the favourable ones. If you were to give us a poor rating, then uh, please don't bother and just move on. Uh, but but uh, for ratings on iTunes uh, allows allows us to appear on the lists more and makes it easier for for other potential listeners to find us. So until next week, goodbye. Uh, goodbye for now.